the human race will consume more food in the next 50 years than it has in the past 10,000 years combined. But how big of a problem is what I eat? I mean, does it really make much of a dent in something as huge as global warming? They're calling it the new GFC, the global food crisis. The world is facing a crisis, a serious one, and it's all because of food. We discovered that the world will be short 214 trillion calories by 2027. 214 trillion calories. A single Big Mac has 563 calories. That means the world will be short 379 billion Big Macs in 2027. That is more Big Macs than McDonald's has ever produced. The global population is growing rapidly. In fact, we're expected to reach more than 9 billion people by 2050. And as we expand comes an even greater need to boost our food supplies. The World Bank and the United Nations have both warned of an impending food crisis, driven by our inability to produce enough food to meet the demands of our growing population. In fact, in 2015, the World Bank said that sub-Saharan Africa would need to increase its food production by 60% by 2030 to meet growing demands. Adding climate change and the challenge of producing enough food becomes even bigger, with many scientists expecting crop yields to decrease. We should expect, again this is the IPC report, a 2% drag on yields every decade beginning in 2030. But it's not all doom and gloom. Well, not yet anyway. This impending crisis is spawning huge growth in new technologies and ideas that are aiming to change the way we consume and produce foods on a global scale. Everything from the way we grow crops to the way we consume meat is all about to change. There's actually an incredibly simple solution. Give people all the meat that they want, but just produce it from completely non-animal sources. Welcome to Moonshot, the show exploring crazy ideas and the even crazier people that are making them happen. I'm Christopher Lawson. And I'm Andrew Moon. Now, following on from our look at 3D printed foods, we're starting to look more into the future of food production. And in this episode, we're looking specifically at one food that keeps billions of people sustained, meat. Yes, in this episode, we are looking at how meat production is changing as companies look to convince you to try plant-based alternatives. So there are many uh, factors, obviously, that uh, drive uh, all this development. Uh, First and foremost, I guess, it's the ever-increasing world population and uh, obviously the need to uh, feed uh, up to 12 billion uh, people uh, uh, in the next 100 years. This is Dr. Roman Bacot, a food process engineer at Australia's CSIRO, an organisation that is deeply involved in researching the ways that our global food production is changing. We are probably coming uh, very close uh, to a situation where we actually can't grow more food uh, in the land and water that we have available. 
Uh, and we're squeezing out as much as we can at the moment. But um, uh, in the end, uh, it's probably not sustainable. We all know that uh, using fertilizers or uh, uh, having uh, animal-based uh, meat sources can only feed a certain number of people. Uh, that isn't sustainable in the future from an environmental point of view, but also simply from uh, the way uh, we grow things and, and affordability is a, is a big factor as well. So uh, if we could grow meat in a lab, for example, without having a cow feeding um, in the paddock uh, for, for a year or so, uh, that would um, obviously provide a lot of opportunities in terms of uh, scale of production, but also in terms of the environmental footprint that this would um, have. Now, I'm mostly a vegetarian. I was 12 or 13 when I decided to give up chicken and beef. So most of my life, I've grown up largely eating vegetarian meals and watching people in my family cook food that in many ways resembles meat, but isn't. And often a lot of these products have names designed to mimic the real thing, and I must admit I've always found that the meals are actually pretty tasty and enjoyable. But the future of meat is not actually about vegetarians, it's about convincing meat eaters to make the switch to plant-based meats or even lab-grown alternatives, and it turns out that might actually be a pretty hard sell. Would you eat meat that was grown in a lab? Not preferably, no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't trust it. Well, I have no philosophical reason why not, um, but if there were some medical or other indication that um, such meat was not appropriate for human consumption, I wouldn't. Would you eat meat that was grown in a lab? No. No way. <laughs> well, why not? What sort of meat are you talking about? Grown from stem cells of... Uh, oh, of no, it just doesn't seem natural to me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't eat it. Would you eat meat that was grown in a lab, in a test tube? No. Why not? Because it's got, well, what do you know what's in it? Well, as if it's out in a paddock eating grass, you know what it's, what's in it. How about uh, plant-based products that were designed to taste like meat? No. Um, no, no, I don't think I'd try that. I'd try it, but I don't think it, I couldn't see myself changing from meat, unfortunately. So the idea of eating lab-grown meat may not appeal to everyone, but if companies can succeed in convincing us, the masses, to put a lab patty on their next burger, that means a lot less reliance on raising farm animals for consumption. Just to put things in perspective, at the start of this year, the US Department of Agriculture predicted that in 2018, Americans would consume 100 kilos or 222 pounds of meat in the year per person beating a record set in 2004. And National Public Radio looked at what goes into just one hamburger patty based on some research by the Journal of Animal Science. Now, they found that for just one quarter pound patty, that's 110 grams, you need 6.7 pounds of grains or other food, nearly 53 gallons of water, and 74 and a half square feet of grazing land. That's just for one meat patty. And it's without taking into account the energy required for production and transport, waste generated by animals, or methane emissions. Now, the world's first lab-grown cultured beef burger has been cooked and eaten at an event in London. Now, the first lab-grown burger was eaten back in 2013 after a two-year project that was funded by Google founder Sergey Brin. And was made by using stem cells taken from a dead cow. The project cost a cool 325,000 US dollars, 
but it was a great proof of concept that has inspired many others to take on the challenge of trying to grow meat in a lab that's just as good as the real thing. Memphis Meats, based in San Francisco, is one of the companies that's picked up the gauntlet to grow their own clean meats. Yes, clean meat is the term that many of these companies are using to try and differentiate their products from your regular meat products. I'm proud to unveil the world's first ever poultry products that were grown from animal cells without the full animal. Memphis has produced a meatball and also some chicken and duck products, which, at least based on their videos, look almost the same as the real thing. The startup has even attracted funding from Richard Branson and Bill Gates, along with Tyson Foods, one of America's biggest meat producers. And Tyson has also invested in other lab-grown meat, including the Israeli-based Future Meat Technologies. And another company looking at this in Israel is Supermeat. You like chicken, right? But this chicken is cute, right? How would you like not killing it? Congratulations, now you can. What would be better than getting meat from killing animals? Getting meat without killing animals. Yeah. Supermeat is focused on creating lab-grown chicken. The company raised almost $250,000 on Indiegogo back in 2016 and recently raised a further $3 million to help with their research. Now, the interesting thing in all of this is Tyson Foods, who also see a future in a post-meat world. They've invested in Beyond Meat, a Californian startup that's making plant-based alternatives from peas. At Beyond Meat, we're bypassing the animal altogether and sourcing meat's core parts, namely protein, lipids, trace minerals, and trace carbohydrates, directly from the plant kingdom and making a new form of meat. Beyond Meat is extracting proteins from the peas and using them to replicate the texture of meat. The other company making waves in this post-meat consumer world is Impossible Foods. Impossible Foods has raised $387 million to design fake meat products that are supposed to be very similar to the real thing. They're targeted at meat eaters, and the company is taking it one step further than Beyond Foods by trying to make their burgers actually bleed like real meat, and they're doing that using heme. What's this red stuff? That is heme. It's the same molecule that carries oxygen in your blood and makes it red, but it's actually found in every living thing, even plants. Interesting. There's a huge amount of heme in red meat. Impossible Burgers heme is made by fermentation, and it's the key ingredient that makes our burger extra meaty. But whether you're trying to create a fake meat product or actually grow it from animal cells, is it really possible to create the experience of meat in a lab? Not right now, but uh, I believe uh, in the not-so-distant future it will be possible. Um, especially um, the medical field is um, pioneering this area, obviously, because they want to. They already grow uh, skin, for example, in the lab, and uh, parts of muscle tissues. Um, at the moment, uh, the reason why it's not, uh, you know, broadly done is simply because the the cost of doing this is uh, still, you know, several magnitudes higher than, uh, you know, cutting a steak out of a cow, for example. Uh, but it, it will be possible in the future and uh, probably for a, a much more affordable price than it is now. You mentioned costs being a factor at the moment. What are some of the other difficulties and challenges with replicating meat in a lab? 
Yes, so MATE, for example, is obviously quite a complex uh, structure to start with, and then also quite a complex flavor note that comes with it. So the eating experience of uh, eating a steak, for example, is quite unique, and it's it's not trivial to replicate that um, using an alternative uh, ingredient, for example, or um, even if you grow a muscle in the lab, you tend to only grow uh, muscle fibers, so individual fibers, which you still need to put together uh, to form a, a whole muscle structure. What is currently on the market and, and where most uh, companies are going is having, uh, instead of a whole muscle, they, they look at uh, minced meat, so burger-type uh, meats and or uh, chicken McNugget-type uh, products, uh, where obviously the structure is uh, minced up already and then fried and or covered with a uh, with another flavoring to um, uh, either mask the actual flavor and or um, the actual uh, texture of of that uh, product so by doing that by using like a, a like a minced sort of uh, structure to the products it's making it harder to discern as being like a fake meat product yeah, that's correct. Uh, I think uh, in terms of uh, a, pa- a patty or a sausage, for example, that's also obviously a highly minced uh, meat product. Um, it is, uh, with the current technology, it is possible to mimic the texture. And if you add the right flavors, uh, then also, um, you know, having the right flavor profile so that the end consumer can hardly differentiate between uh, the fake and the real uh, meat product. So you may not yet have a lab-grown steak, but can you actually taste the difference between fake meats and real meats? We'll have the answer to that question right after this break. Welcome back to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson, and before the break we were looking at lab-grown meats and also their plant-based cousins. And all this talk about food is actually making me pretty hungry, but there's no point just talking about all of these burgers, we actually need to try them. Okay, so I've just ordered one of these impossible burgers here in San Francisco and it's sitting in a plastic container that I'm about to open. From the outside, it looks completely normal. Nothing suspect as yet. All right, let's see what we've got. It looks normal. It looks exactly like a meat patty. Give it the smell test. All right, it doesn't smell like meat. That's a start. It looks remarkably like a meat patty. That's very strange. All right, let's give this a go. Oh, it's two of these patties on the burger. This is going to be very interesting. That is very weird. They have really nailed the texture of this thing. It's obviously lacking the beef taste, but you really can't tell. I feel like I'm also breaking every rule about eating with my mouthful. That is so strange. 
So it looks the same. No smell. That's the strangest thing. No smell. No discernible meat taste, obviously. I'm going to break a bit of the patty off. It tastes a little nutty, which is not surprising, but that's about all. So there you go. Impossible burger. Looks like meat. Chews like meat. Very good substitute. So I was also really keen to give the Impossible Burger a try because I always hear about these vegetarian options that taste pretty similar to meat, but at the moment, these burgers are really only available in the US. So we'll have to take Andrew's word for it. So Andrew, we just heard you trying the Impossible Burger and you seemed to indicate that it's actually not too bad as a replacement for meat. So now that you've given it some time to digest... What do you actually think? So, I think the two things that stood out to me with this burger, besides the fact of everything else around it tasting exactly the same, I mean, the bun was the same, the tomato is the same, the lettuce is the same, uh, and the chips are the same, is texture and taste. The texture, I couldn't tell the difference. Like, this thing had the exact same texture I'd expect um, from a beef or lamb patty, but without the taste. And that was the weirdest thing is it didn't have- a strong taste of anything, really. It just lacked that strong meat taste. You could get a little bit of plant materials or like maybe a little bit of mushroom or it was a little nutty, but it really was a lack of taste that was the most standout thing in this burger. And I think what is interesting is that might be dependent so much on where you order the burger from. Uh, There are obviously in San Francisco, there are I think over 10 or 12 locations where you can get an impossible burger or meat-based product from, but it depends on how the chef, like any meat, flavors it. So that was the the main thing is the texture is remarkably like um, normal animal-based meat, which was m- kind of mind-blowing, but the taste um, was very subtle and really non-existent. Right. So given all of that, would you actually consider swapping out your meat patty for one of these meat-free options? Definitely. I can definitely see myself um, ordering this as an option if it was on the menu. I mean, I've made it a thing to try and um, eat less beef this year because I think I've become more aware of uh, the environmental toll that beef production takes. Um, But if you had these two options on a menu, a beef or a lamb burger or whatever, uh, and, and be this impossible burger, I think it becomes, for me at least, it becomes pretty clear. It's like, yes, okay, option A, the taste, and I'm familiar with it. But option B, you think back to those numbers, that's a lot of impact. That's mm. a lot of um, area of land that could be used for something else. A lot of gallons of water going into the production of this 110 grams of meat. And if the option is that or something that doesn't have that, has a, a much more reduced uh, process, is better for the environment, and is ultimately more sustainable and doesn't taste like rubbish or anything, like it actually tastes, if anything, it, it goes away and, and lets everything else in the meal stand out because it doesn't have a distinct meat taste, then I'm probably going to go option B because I feel better for doing that as a consumer. I can't really tell the difference in taste too much. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's for me, at least, it feels like an obvious choice. Right. I mean, I obviously like spoke to a bunch of people on the streets in Melbourne and the response was like not fantastic. So, what do you think it would actually take to 
bring this to the mass market to convince people to eat these products instead of their traditional meat that they're very familiar with. They love going to the butcher. They love getting a good steak and putting it on the barbecue. What would it take? I mean, I kind of think it's the basics of um, any new product in the sense that it's about marketing this thing and getting it into more cities and more countries and getting people used to hearing about it and tasting it and seeing it. If people start to to see these Impossible Burgers or these other products more uh, and they see it mainstream, they see oh, influencers, celebrities, whoever starting to eat it, they see it in popular culture, then they'll probably be convinced to try it. I mean, if you go to the Impossible Burger site, it's very slick. Uh, and, and it reflects this idea that it's not rocket science to get more people to probably eat this. It's getting it into the hands of the masses. It's getting acceptance. It's it's slick marketing. It's all those elements that make a, a, a breakout product uh, crack through into the everyday market. And I think it's the same with this. I mean, I don't think, yeah, initially you have people going, oh, I would never eat that from a lab. That's kind of strange. And yeah, I get that. But then that's what marketing does. It, it pushes us past those initial arguments to go, this is good for you. This is good for the environment. Um, and I think once you see more marketing, you see more people eating these burgers, maybe celebrities or influencers having these burgers, then I think you'll just, you will start to see that acceptance and people will become over time more and more comfortable with it. And that doesn't even add in the fact that the environmental issues of food shortages around the globe are only going to increase. So the argument for this will not decrease over time at all. A lot of the technology we explore on Moonshot often feels really far into the future. But when we talk about the future of meat and essentially a complete rethink of where meat comes from, it seems the future is a lot closer. You can order some of the plant-based burgers right now and the lab-grown burgers aren't actually that far away. So while ordering a different kind of hamburger in San Francisco or your favourite burger joint might not seem like a grand gesture on the road to solving the world's big food problems, Gaining widespread acceptance and in turn building the demand, new industries, new processes and a reduced cost actually matters a lot. So I think it's important to remember that uh, every bite counts. If you love Moonshot, then make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get podcasts. We're also on Spotify, Google Play Music, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and pretty much every other podcasting app. So subscribe to the show and share it with all of your friends. It's really the best way of helping us build our audience. Moonshot is a production of Lawson Media and it's hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, and also Andrew Moon. Andrew Millist designed our amazing cover artwork and Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme track. You can find out more about the show by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Moonshot Pod and send us a message if you've got an idea that you'd really love us to explore. Join us again next time on Moonshot as we explore more ideas that are changing our future.